This is Corey Kraft from Aspect Radio. The podcast you are about to hear is missing the first 30 seconds because it was my first time alone in the studio and I forgot to press record. So to set it up, Ben is in Atlanta, I'm alone in the studio, and we're talking the past decade of summer movies. I hope you enjoy the conversation and forgive the lack of technical finesse that comes with me being a first-timer. And uh, without further ado, here's Aspect Radio. Let's look back at the past decade of summer movies. Let's say 2001 to this current year and see how they measure up. Which movies do we still watch or talk about? Which summer had the best movies? And if it's alright with you, Ben, let's run through this past decade of summer movies and let's take turns naming some summer blockbusters that have lasted longer for us than a momentary thrill in theaters, or those we still think about. Then let's talk about some of the most disappointing or worst summer blockbusters, and finally we'll name our favorite year for summer movies this decade, and I suspect we're both in agreement for that one. So to start, uh, let's name five, let's say five summer blockbusters from this past decade that have lasted, and for the purposes of this discussion, I think we should exclude The Dark Knight, anything released by Pixar, and anything released this year so far, because there's really just no way to know about their lasting power. Uh, so Ben, why don't you start us off? What's the summer blockbuster you've seen in the past decade that you, has stuck with you? Uh, well, I'm going to go in order, and I actually cheated uh, and okay. included 2000. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, we're interested in memories that have lasted longer than a momentary thrill in theaters. And I think that some of these might have been a moment, momentary thrill for me, but I can look back on them uh, nostalgically and think, well, even if it was a momentary thrill, it was my best summer movie experience that year. Uh, and for 2000, uh, one that I really in, enjoyed and probably the most came early that summer, and it was Mission Impossible 2 from John Woo, and uh, of course with Tom Cruise. And, um, you know, I think this was released after Gladiator that summer. Yeah, I think it was and Memorial Day. Yeah, maybe right before, maybe right after. I can't really recall. I'd have to pull the schedule back up again. But um, I just remember uh, being slightly disappointed with Gladiator. Uh, you know, I, I bought into the marketing for it, and I thought it was just going to be the all-time Gladiator movie. And I thought, you know, if, if, if you could, I would have bought stock in uh, Russell Crowe as being like this new guy who could uh, lead the charge in summer movies again. And it just wasn't really the movie that I was hoping it to be. And since then, I've gone back and watched, and it, it's fine. It, it, it's not really a Best Picture winner in my mind. Yeah, not mine either. Uh, yeah, but it's sufficient. Um, but, you know, I, when Mission Impossible 2 came out, <coughs> I was already a fan of the franchise because I enjoyed Brian De Palma's uh, first entry to that franchise. Um, but I was I was really becoming a huge fan of John Woo in the late 90s leading up to it because I, you know, I was in my anticipation for Face Off in 97, I think. Um, I watched a lot of John Woo's Hong Kong action movies, you know, namely Hard Boiled and Killer, and I just became such a huge fan of his choreography and uh, his direction just as an action filmmaker, and I thought he was easily the best, uh, and if not, right up there, and I thought that he really employed a lot of those techniques and uh, just visual elements into Mission Impossible 2, uh, especially during its action sequences, and a lot of people will 
hate on the story of Mission Impossible 2, but essentially you're talking about, if you, if you want to hate on it, and you want to hate on Robert Town, I believe, who wrote it, you're hating on Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious 2, and you're hating on Ben Hecht, because it's essentially a loose remake of Notorious, uh, the, the plot for that. And so whatever problems you might have plot-wise, uh, take it up with Mr. Hitchcock, because he, he's, you know, indirectly responsible, I guess. But I just thought that, I mean, if we're just going to talk about what we look for in a summer movie, look, it's got it's got some pretty awesome action sequences, especially the uh, motorcycle duel or chase at the end of uh-huh. it. And it just, it just gave me what I wanted, I guess, from a summer experience. And I think I might have even seen it multiple times uh, in, in what I guess would be the Kyle, or excuse me, the Fox 12 or the Bama 6. I can't remember which theater it was in, but I saw it more than once. But that, that started the decade off pretty well for me. Uh-huh. You know, I've only seen that movie once, so I can't really talk about it that well. But I, you know, I, I guess I am a big, pretty big face-off fan. So mm-hmm. I don't know. John Woo, he gets the benefit of the doubt for me, but I just don't remember much about Mission Impossible Two, um, mm-hmm. other than to say I don't really remember having very good feelings about it for whatever reason. But it, that's that's on the rewatch list, along with actually Brian De Palma's first movie, just because I do remember liking that, and I want to see if that holds up. Um, you're a huge Brian De Palma fan. Too, I, right? I am kind of a big Brian De Palma fan, so um, we'll see. We'll see uh, how his foray into the summer blockbuster holds up uh, when I rewatch that. Uh, my number one, and this is not in order. This is, I suppose, in chronological order. Uh, is 2001's Steven Spielberg summer film AI Artificial Intelligence, which uh, we've talked about, I think, on the show before, but it sort of defies the logic of everything you'd expect a summer movie to be um it's long it's ponderous it doesn't go to easy or conventional places often some would say to the film's detriment uh the third act of the film is still discussed and maligned uh, to this day and I suppose if we're talking about qualifications for a lasting summer blockbuster, uh, the debate surrounding AI and whether it was better suited directed by Steven Spielberg or the late Stanley Kubrick, who originally shepherded the project, uh, that debate still rages on. So I suppose from that point of view, you could say that AI was a lasting summer experience, but it helps that I really, really, really like this movie. I think it's visually stunning, and I think it's one of Steven Spielberg's best works as both a a director and a writer. He actually was the sole writer on the screenplay for the first time, I believe, since Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, which is also a great movie. Uh, Ben, what do you think about AI? I know we've talked about it, so we, we don't have to reiterate it too much. Well, I think we're going to talk about it a little later, um, okay. and I think we're prob- I think that uh, Steven Spielberg's name is probably going to come up a few times during this conversation. But I'm curious to you, as a as a big fan of this movie, do you think that AI as a summer blockbuster is up there with some of Steven Spielberg's uh, classic releases? You know, say like the Indiana Jones movies or Jaws or Jurassic Park. Do you think AI uh, works? in that same mold? Not not in the same, like, I suppose, thrills-a-minute blockbuster mold, no. But I do think it is one of his better movies, ultimately, from an artistic standpoint. I just don't think that summer was 
you know, really the best time to release this movie, though I, I suppose some would say when <laughs> could time be. Um, I mean, he takes a bunch of elements, that, for instance, the presence of Haley Joel Osment, fresh off the Sixth Sense, just two years later, um, and he just, I don't know, he doesn't do what you'd expect with it. I, I can understand people hating this movie, I really can, uh, but... Yeah, as far as as far as being on par with Jaws and the Indiana Jones movies, it's at least on par with Jurassic Park, and I think it's better than the second or well, the the last three Indiana Jones movies. I, I forget that fourth movie exists. I probably shouldn't bring it up. Uh, as far as being better than Jaws and Raiders, no, I don't think so. But yeah, you know, it's good well, um, for what it is. Yeah, well, my second pick, Corey, I think might be the maybe my most I don't know what people would consider controversial pick because I think that I might be in a slight minority with this movie and this is the second and last movie on my list that is the sequel to an original and it's The Matrix Reloaded from wow. 2003. Yeah, you know, looking back, I mean, it's not a great movie but again, if we're talking about what we're looking for in a summer blockbuster... Sure, pure summer experience. That, yeah, pure summer experience, something that can just completely wrap us up uh, with visuals and, uh, you know, these eye-popping action sequences and unbelievable set pieces that took hundreds of millions of dollars to make. I think The Matrix Reloaded absolutely delivers. It has some of the best pure movie action I've ever seen and continue to ever see. I think it has pretty high rewatchability value for those reasons, especially that freeway uh, chase sequence. It's really just unbelievable that ultimately involves uh, the crash of two 18-wheelers, uh, and then you have this martial arts fight on top of the 18-wheelers between Lawrence Fishburne and one of the agents, and then you have the, just the initial car chase with uh, Trinity and the, the evil twins, uh -huh. you know, those like albino dreadlocks twins, and there, there's much more in this movie. Um, you know, you have the, the Neo fight with, like, the hundreds of Agent Smiths uh, in the city park. So, I, you know, I, I was excited coming off of the first movie going into this. I thought that it continued to establish interesting mythology. I thought the Wachowskis hit a stride, but then you could kind of see the warning signs uh, throughout this movie, too. Again, this is not a perfect experience, and you had some stretches, I guess you could say, narratively with that mythology, and sure. adding so many new characters, and visiting Zion, which you had heard about in the first movie, and that's a place where I'd rather not visit again, <laughs> having gone there, you know, I, I thought, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar isn't so bad after all, if Zion is uh, really, if this is all Zion really has to offer, but either way, I, I just think from a pure action standpoint, The Matrix Reloaded does deliver. I mean, I was right there with you in 2003. I don't think it holds up. And, you know, I mean, a lot's been said about the special effects. That doesn't really bother me, but I don't think it holds up because of where the series ultimately goes with The Matrix Revolutions, which is one of my major all-time film-going disappointments uh, because I was really with The Matrix Reloaded, and I don't feel that Revolutions exactly delivered on the narrative promise set up in that that sequel but as far as pure summer experience goes yeah i could i could i could get behind that pick uh my number two is another steven spielberg movie from 2002 uh minority report 
Now, talk about intelligent sci-fi and talk about spectacular set pieces. I think that this one uh, has all of that in spades. I think it is, has some of Spielberg's sharpest and most surprising direction. Uh, a very good performance from Tom Cruise. And really, it's just a great look uh, at, a, at a sort of dystopian science fiction future. Uh, one of my favorite genres, but also one that's hard to do correctly uh, or do well. Um, but I think Minority Report is just, I mean, it's a satisfying mystery. It's a science fiction film uh, that really goes in some interesting places. Uh, ben, what are your thoughts on Minority Report? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to talk about it later. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I might, sure. some of your, one of your other picks. But um, I, I like it okay. Ultimately, I was left pretty cold by the movie, which I think, you know, is, is natural. I think people who liked it might have been left cold. Uh, but it just it's obviously not my favorite Steven Spielberg movie. I think technically it's brilliant. I think that John Williams is doing a great job. Janusz Kaminski is once again earning his paycheck. He's on fire. Think, um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, Spielberg creates a very um, unique look for a movie that has since been copied in other films and commercials um, and you've got to give them credit for that and the special effects, yes they are outstanding but I didn't really latch on to the story like you did and I think that the movie might have even been 30 minutes too long and in fact I think that there is a there is a uh, part in the movie or a point in the movie where I thought wow it could have ended right there it really could have, I felt like loose ends were tied up yeah. and I know what you're talking reached, about yeah it just reached a point where I thought okay well that would work as the end of the film, yet it goes on for an additional 20 to 30 minutes, and I just felt it unnecessary. So, whenever it's on TV, I will find myself watching it, but I don't own it. I'll put it that way. Right. Not not a Blu-ray purchase for you. Well, you know, it might be a Blu-ray rental. I bet that really looks good on Blu-ray. All right, what's your number three? My number three might wind up on your list, uh, Corey. It's Anchorman um, from 2004. The Legend of Ron Burgundy, of course, starring Will Ferrell, co-written by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, who directed it. One of the better comedy teams in, uh, you know, film today. Um, I think that this is easily their their crowning achievement, even if it was their debut together in the feature film arena. Uh, but I think that this is quite easily the best comedy of the past decade and uh, the last great classic comedy that not only is just totally quotable um, it's just been quoted ad nauseum uh, for the past six years and I never get tired of it and I think it's really a solid narrative too I think it's an interesting story and I think Ron Burgundy is one of the, the best characters certainly from the decade too and I just completely uh, I just completely lapped up everything about this movie the promotions I mean the soundtrack is hilarious where Ron Burgundy is doing intros to each 70s song the, the DVD that uh, followed or that came out that was basically an additional movie from cut footage yeah. that uh, they it's called Wake Up Run Burgundy but just the film itself I thought was was uh, such a wonderful experience I, I laughed I laughed out loud throughout the entire thing and that's not something that I can say about a lot of other comedies that have uh, since been released and uh, you know I think not too long ago it might have been you or, uh, or someone else that had a status that said you know looking back on the decade of comedy what are some of the greatest quotes yeah, that was of all mean. time? Yeah, and I remember reading the list, and you know, most people were quoting things like Wedding Crashers and The Hangover, 
uh, nobody was quoting Anchorman, and it completely blew my mind. And I just think that the one quote or the one line that, to me, cracks me up every single time and sort of defines defines the movie and the experiences. Milk was a bad choice. <laughs> And, I, again, I, I could pop Anchorman in right now, and I would still laugh out loud. I, I think it's uh, just a, an example of Will Ferrell's genius, and he hasn't really tapped into it since then. We've had elements of it, but this is uh, what I would consider comedy brilliance. Well, I disagree that he hasn't tapped into it, as I'll talk about a little later, but I totally agree with Anchorman, which is also my number three. Um, and I also want to f- talk about briefly the since you pretty much covered everything that i had uh the supporting cast which is which is outstanding here it sort of introduced the country to uh, steve carell for those who hadn't seen him on the daily show uh paul rudd and david keckner make up the rest of the news team and then of course christina applegate uh they're all right up there with feral i think uh as far as i mean i just think this is just such a tight such a cohesive unit um and they're just all so funny. This is just such a funny movie. I mean, you're right that this is this is probably one of the funniest movies of the decade. I don't know if I can come around to saying it's the funniest. I'd have to think about it a little more, but I can't really think of anything that that matches it quite off the top of my head. Uh, but Ben, what's your number four? Number four is 2008's Iron Man, uh, the Marvel comic adaptation that I think finally got comic book movies right with a blend of not only what I thought was just an incredibly snappy and funny screenplay, but also exciting action set pieces and visuals just completely dominated by Robert Downey Jr.'s performance as Tony Stark. I think it, again, if we're, you know, if we're getting hyperbolic here and we're talking about the best of the decade or the past 20 years, I think that his performance is one of the best I've seen in a long time. It's just something that the film completely relies on successfully so and it you know it brought Downey Jr. back to the mainstream uh, and thank goodness because he's done great work since then and I think including Iron Man 2 I think that he was the best part of that movie that was lacking you know some of the things that the original brought I don't think Iron Man is again a perfect movie and a lot of people would probably argue that it wasn't the best comic book movie that summer. Uh, you know, obviously, we excluded The Dark Knight here. I think that that was much more so your rule than it was mine, because, you know, <laughs> in the end, I, I think, as a summer movie, I preferred Iron Man, in a way, to The Dark Knight. Um, it just sort of filled my needs, I guess, so to speak, um, uniquely. Uh, while I did enjoy The Dark Knight, but... Iron Man was it was an exciting experience. I saw it three times in the theater. Oh wow! Uh, which is which is rare these days, and you know there are flaws to be sure. It doesn't have uh, a perfect villain, uh, a foil to Tony Stark, who is sort of this uh, literally this superhero who can who can, who can't do much wrong. He just kind of has it all figured out, and it, and has become indestructible. And so whatever foil you sort of put in his way, it seems like he can overcome it fairly easily. And I just wasn't really scared by the bad guy or bad guys in it but again i mean i I don't really know how you can't have fun watching that movie right no it's a it's a fun movie um my number four is actually another comic book movie um and i think you probably have mixed feelings about 
this particular franchise, but it's uh, Spider-Man 2 from 2004, which is the best of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, and one of the better superhero movies I think ever made. A lot of people hold that it's the best, and I, I would never say that, because as, as you mentioned, I'm sort of an acolyte for the Dark Knight. Um, but Spider-Man 2 is a lot of fun. I think it really gets to the heart of the Spider-Man character. Uh, a character that I have always been fond of. I think it's Tobey Maguire's best best performance as Spider-Man. Um, because frankly, what else are we looking at here? He's not much of a presence in the first one. And then the third one kind of goes off the rails for everybody. But I, but I think Spider-Man 2... I mean, it, it has a really touching look at the, the Peter-Mary Jane dynamic. It has a great villain. It has great set pieces. And like Iron Man, you know, with, with you, I, I don't feel that this is perfect, but I feel that it gets to the heart of what I'm looking for in a summer movie, and in a comic book movie in particular, closely enough that, it, that I can overlook these flaws. Uh, so how about Spider-Man 2, Ben? What do you think? Well... Concerning the Spider-Man franchise, like you said, I do have feelings about it where I'm just, there's sort of empty feelings. I think that you're right. It has everything that you're looking for out of a summer film or, or an action-adventure movie or a comic book movie. It has all the elements that it needs. It looks good. It's got a pretty good score. It's got a dynamic lead, a, an interesting villain, a uh, romantic uh, through-line, uh, but it just sort of had no effect on me at all. It just left me thinking to myself, well, I've seen it once, do I really need to see it again? I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> and that was just how I would, that's, that's how the entire franchise uh, worked for me. Of, of course, I mean, Spider-Man 3, not not the best of the bunch. Uh, I think that it's a toss-up between 1 and 2 if I'm having to pick. I, I think I'll pick 2 if I don't have to look at that ridiculous Green Goblin uh, outfit <laughs> again. Um, but no, I mean, look, I, I think it's it's good. I think it's good for, for movies and good for comic book movies, and maybe it's because Spider-Man wasn't my favorite Marvel superhero uh, in the world, but uh, and I, I did think Tobey Maguire was the ideal choice for Peter Parker and Spider-Man, and I think it it's a shame that um, they're so quick to replace him now after uh, what everybody considers to be a failure in Spider-Man 3, which I don't think was his fault necessarily no. but I guess they were just ready to move on but I mean you've got to think that it's kind of a bonehead move in a way considering how much money the Spider-Man movies made yeah no I agree I agree uh, I, and I think Sam Raimi is too promising of a filmmaker to just sort of throw away like that but uh, oh well and I, I you know to counter that I love Sam Raimi I think he's great I love his early work and uh, we'll talk about some of his more recent work later but I just was always frustrated with the Spider-Man franchise because I felt like Sam Raimi was too talented of an original and creative storyteller to be spending all of his, basically this entire decade, working on the Spider-Man movies. I thought that he had way more to offer, and I wish that, you know, sort of like Christopher Nolan did in between these Batman movies where he made The Prestige and now Inception, I wish that Sam Raimi had done something similar where he made, uh, you know, Sam Raimi specific projects in between the uh -huh. three Spider-Man movies, but I guess uh, he's finally free of that prison. So what's your number five? I cheated again. Uh, it's a combo, um, and it they both come from 2009, Okay. And which I think was a pretty underrated year. I mean, actually. I think it was great. Yeah, it's, pre it's, it's pretty solid, uh, but the first one 
was the second major release in what should have been the first was Star Trek, J.J. Abrams' uh, reboot, I guess, of the Star Trek franchise, the sort of uh, flatlining Star Trek franchise uh-huh. for the mainstream anyway. The, the, the Trekkies were still on board. They, they would never leave. But I just thought that J.J. Abrams completely brought it and made this event movie uh, for 2009, that, uh, which was an experience that I hadn't had in a while. There were moments during this movie where you have this very well-done script, inexplicably by the, uh, the, the duo that brought us Transformers movies, um, but I, I thought that they just wrote a fantastic script with good dialogue, and it, it certainly helped that Abrams cast this uh, very vibrant, young, uh, fresh group of faces who were up to the challenge to revitalize this um, franchise that was beloved by so many and could have left a lot of people cold in a way because, I mean, some people will, you know, mainstream audiences might refer to Star Trek as that geeky series of movies that's specifically for nerds, yet I think J.J. Abrams completely hit the nail on the head, knocked it out of the park. I mean, again, with the hyperbole, um, I think that... uh, like I said, there are moments where you have Abrams' direction, the, the film's narrative, coupled with Michael Giacchino's terrific score, uh, where I felt, to, while watching it in the theater, wow, you know, I kind of feel like I'm part of something here. This is memorable. You know, specifically, I, you know, I can refer back to the scene where Bruce Greenwood's captain is trying to recruit Kirk in the bar after the fight, and, you know, he's telling the story about Kirk's dad saving the lives which we see in the opening scene, which is a movie unto itself. Gosh, I mean, you talk about Up that same summer, and we're not allowed to talk about Pixar movies, I know, but (laughs) where you feel like you've experienced all sorts of emotions during the first ten minutes of the movie, I think Star Trek gives you the same thing, where you have this terrific action sequences, this space battle with Kurt's father versus um, the, uh, what are the names of the, the, the... Aliens, I guess. Um, the, not Cleons, but... The Vulcan? No. What are, Romulans. The Romulans. Romulans, yeah. You have this, again, this just really awesome sequence. Uh, I think that Star Trek uh, is right up there. You know, again, this is a chrono- chronological list, but I, I really so enjoyed that. And my number, I guess, you know, combo number one, and again, chronological, is Quentin Tarantino's and Glorious Bastards, ah. which just barely made the cut yeah. in August uh, 2009, but... Again, I thought that that was a good summer, uh, but I, I just think that Inglorious Bastards came at the right time because we were about to hit the, I guess, award movie season where we got what was supposedly going to be the crop of films that would compete at the Oscars, and we were past, uh, you know, what I think some people kind of consider the the kitty season, that is summer movie season, and I think Tarantino. Um, not only did he just make a, a, an outstanding original war movie comp- just incredibly entertaining it really made me feel better because I think that we had sort of like a rebirth and return of Quentin Tarantino and Corey I know that you're a fan of Death Proof and I think you're a fan of Kill Bill Volume 2 but I, I personally thought that Tarantino was kind of in a slump of sorts creatively I, I, I think that there are things worth liking in those movies but they weren't really made by the same guy who managed to transcend the medium and innovate and I think that Inglorious Bastards 
was a return to form in one of his best movies ever, if not his best movie. And if that's something that I get to enjoy during the summer, then all the better. Sure, that's a good pick. Uh, my number five is uh, another Will Ferrell, Adam McKay team-up, actually. It's uh, 2008's Step Brothers. And while I would I would certainly agree that Step Brothers doesn't quite have the heft of something like Inglorious Bastards, and, and of course I think Inglorious Bastards is ultimately a better movie, Step Brothers is yet another comedy that is eminently rewatchable for me. Uh, literally, I can watch this movie any time of the day. At you know, I, I I could watch this movie every day and and feel totally fine. I think it's totally hilarious. Will Ferrell plays off John C. Riley, his co-star from Talladega Nights, uh, which Adam McKay also directed, and which I'm not crazy about, but I I still think it's pretty funny. Uh, but Step Brothers, I think, reaches new heights of manic hilarity. One reason for that, of course, is because it's their first R-rated collaboration, and, you know, you can't really underestimate the power of comedic use of profanity. Um, I don't know why. I guess I'm just a horribly crude person, but it makes me laugh. Um, yeah, yeah. What, Ben, what do you think about Step Brothers? I really like Step Brothers. It, it was kind of part of this trio of highly anticipated summer comedies in 2008 sure. for me. Yeah. Uh, where you had it, Pineapple Express, and Tropic Thunder, all sort of just kind of uh, banging it out. And I, going into all three of those, I was extremely excited. I thought we were in for just this classic run of uh, feature film comedy. Um, and I was, in a way, disappointed by all three of them. I thought that they were all fine. They all made me laugh a few times, but in the end, they weren't really what I was looking for uh, out of you know these prestige projects made by these great filmmakers and these collaborators uh, but looking back I'd say that Step Brothers is the best of the three and most definitely the most rewatchable of the three if you watch it you can't really even if you didn't even if you weren't crazy about it or you prefer other comedies to it you, there's no way that you can deny that it's hilarious and that there are funny moments from beginning to end and that these guys are just doing whatever they can uh, whether it's in the script or they're in, improvising, they're doing whatever they can to make you laugh, and I think that they're succeeding. So, um, and I thought it was an improvement on Talladega Nights, too. So whenever again, this is one of those where it, if it's on cable, there's no way I'm not going to watch it. Sure. Well, in the interest of, of conserving a little time, let's run through our, wor- our picks for the worst summer blockbusters. I think I picked five, and Ben, why don't you run through your five, explaining them briefly, um, I know that does sort of a disservice, but uh, in the interest of time. No, that's fine. And let me uh, and, uh, let me cheat again here and give you my honorable mention for best. Sure. Uh, and I'll just run through the list uh, from from last year. Drag me to hell again. The Sam Raimi thing. That's on one my honorable moments. mentions too. Yeah, one of those momentary thrills. It, it doesn't really have the same oomph on the second viewing, but gosh, that first viewing was just unbe- just an unbelievable theatrical experience. Right. 2003 Seabiscuit, I love that movie. 2004's Napoleon Dynamite, not exactly a blockbuster, but in a way it kind of is culturally. Um, the Village from 2004, a movie that I love. Uh, Nacho Libre, again, unique to my taste, I think, and you hear the stingers on the show from time to time. I have a very soft spot in my heart for that. Uh, in 2007, what I think was the best comedy, uh, an underrated comedy, A Hot Rod with Andy Samberg, Absolutely. which I thought, I thought was hilarious yeah. but it totally got overshadowed by not fucking super bad 
it's a great comedy. All right, yeah, so uh, did, did you have honorable mentions? Yeah, uh, not as many as you did. Inglorious Bastards would be on mine. Uh, 2002's Road to Perdition, uh, as well, which we haven't mentioned. Uh, a sort of serious drama, inexplicably released in the middle of summer. Not a very good counter-programming move there, but I think it's a great, uh, very lyrical, very beautiful-looking film shot by the late Conrad Hall, um, and uh, it's it's a it's a good film. Um, yeah, so so yeah, take us through the the worst. Okay, worst, and again, this is chronological. Uh, 2007, Robert Zemeckis, What Lies Beneath, with Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer, and again, yeah. th- these aren't necessarily what I would consider awful, awful, atrocious movies, not even worth revisiting, but more of my most disappointing experiences in the theater. I, I had such high hopes, but when Robert Zemeckis, when his, his theory to make this movie is, uh, his mindset is, what if Alfred Hitchcock had CGI? I just think that your head is in the wrong place. That's right. Uh, and speaking of an overabundance of CGI, 2001, The Mummy Returns, hmm. um, another pick. I mean, I love the first movie. I love it. I think, you know, had it been released in this decade, it would have made my list. It's just that action-adventure serial homage, I guess, that most action-adventure movies should strive to be. I think it's the closest thing to Indiana Jones that there has been since Indiana Jones. Maybe on the level of something more like Temple of Doom, and not quite Raiders of the Lost Ark, but Gosh, what a what a ton of fun! And the second movie I just thought was a bomb, just a turkey, and uh, it made me uncomfortable while I was in the theater uh, watching it. Uh, number three, one of your best of the decade, AI from two thousand one. Just again, if we're talking about the level of expectations going into a movie, they were quite high. I mean, when you're talking about names like Kubrick and Spielberg as collaborators, I hope your expectations are high. And for me, it just didn't work. And without getting too specific, I mean, there were just some things where I was asking myself out loud, why, why, why is he doing this? This just doesn't work. And, you know, I'll just, I'll just say one word, flesh bear, um, terrible. Uh, again, going down the list, 2002's Reign of Fire. With, I didn't see that. Yeah, with Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale, two at the time, very interesting actors uh, who I thought were taking kind of a chance making this movie. And look, if you're going to talk about a post-apocalyptic movie about dragons, I'm there, man. You know, if we're talking about, uh, again, Matthew McConaughey plays this, like, skin-headed, dragon-killing mercenary badass, and I think he gives a fine performance. It's okay, but the the movie otherwise is boring. I mean, there's no other word for it, and Christian Bale is completely wasted. Obviously, he recovered from it, and that's okay. Uh, and number five, I've got six again. Gosh, I'm such a cheater. Uh, 2003, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. I just don't remember that movie existing. I, I don't yeah. have strong feelings towards it either way. It's like Terminator yeah. Salvation for me. But yeah, I, you know, I could take or leave either. Uh, honestly, I mean, I wish I could forget Terminator Three. It was, it was just a, it was just bad. I, I, I didn't want to believe. It felt like a bad dream in a way. And uh, I am I am such a huge fan of Terminator Two. It, it, it's right up there with some of my favorites of all time. And I mean, just the fact that James Cameron wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't want to direct it. Didn't want to write it. 
yet they're recycling so many of uh, so many elements of his mythology and his movies. And you know, I think that this was more Schwarzenegger wanting to make this. And obviously, Terminator doesn't work without James Cameron, which again we found out in 2009 with Terminator Salvation. And rounding out my worst, and this is possibly the worst of the bunch from 2008. I saw it at midnight. I dragged my wife, and I apologized to her publicly. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, I'm kind of confounded. Oh. That's not on my list. Yeah, so but that rounds out. And just let me let me quickly, and I won't even explain them. My honorable mentions: 2001 Shrek, 2002 Road to Perdition. Oh man. 2003 Ang Hulk. I like that too. Yeah, 2006 Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Man's Chest. And 2007, and you can throw 2009 in there too if you want, but Michael Bay's Transformers. Wow. Yeah, I think Transformers 2 is a lot worse than the first movie, but okay. We've had that conversation before. Yeah. Uh, so what my, are your worst, Corey? Well, my worst, um, and not including Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, is a major oversight for me uh, because I hate that movie with an unbelievable passion but but just excluding that from the conversation my worst uh this is chronological as well but number one is probably uh the biggest disappointment for me star wars episode two attack the clones which completely collapses on a rewatch you know taking it out of the midnight screening in the setting of oh my god it's another star wars movie episode two might be the worst of the bunch um and it's kind of funny how looking back i think that episode one now is probably the most successful of the prequels as a film because it's not I don't know, I don't even want to get into this. This uh it's another it's another discussion. It could be a whole show. Uh well it you know, it benefits <coughs> from not having Aiden Christensen in the movie. Right. I mean that that is that is an untold benefit. You're right. You're right about that. Um number two for me is from two thousand four. It's Shrek two uh, you mentioned the first one on your honorable or your dishonorable mentions, I should say. Um, the second one is, I, I think, worse. Um, I think the third and fourth movies probably are arguably worse than this one, but Shrek 2 being such a phenomenal success led us to that. That sort of led to Shrek as a franchise, um, and Shrek 2 being so unforgivably dull and unentertaining uh, was pretty unforgivable for me. Uh, also from 2004, my number three pick, Troy from Wolfgang Peterson. I think this is more a case of expectations not being met because it had all of the pieces in place for an awesome epic, and it ended up just failing miserably. 2004 was a pretty bad year for epics. Uh, well, and also, Corey, let me interrupt you for one second. I mean, I'm not a great fan of this movie, and I know you are, but when Darren Aronofsky was prepping The Fountain, uh-huh. he had basically gotten Brad Pitt to agree in principle to star in it, which Hugh Jackman later did. Uh, and then you hear the news that Brad Pitt, he's backing out of the new Darren Aronofsky movie to make Troy. And I remember seeing Troy and being like, really, this is why you didn't want to make that movie? But, oh well. Not a very com- compelling argument for not being in the fountain, if you ask me. Um, my number four is a... Well, from the same director of one of your... Uh, d- uh, worst picks, uh, Van Helsing, which I think is one of the worst uh, excuses for a summer blockbuster unleashed upon the American public uh, ever. Uh, I think it's a terrible, terrible, terrible movie. Um, 
and nothing there's nothing redeeming about this movie um steven summers deserved to be in director jail for as long as he was though i am a fan of gi joe i will admit uh i, I don't know why i can't really explain that but it's a it's a fun movie uh and my worst pick um x-men the last stand from 2006 again i think that ultimately x-men origins wolverine from 2009 is worse but x-men the last stand took the goodwill that the first two x-men movies from brian singer had built and uh destroyed it pretty much entirely uh this is a brett ratner movie this is why fanboys don't much care for him uh well that's well, it that's I, thought that, uh, I thought that was the best of the franchise course <laughs> Oh man, we're gonna have to have a talk. Maybe not now, but that's that's insane. That's a yeah. crazy. That's a crazy opinion. Oh, yeah. I hate that movie. Oh man. Uh, as far as dishonorable mentions, I didn't actually write any out for this, but obviously Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Um, it's sort of in a place beyond uh, all of these movies. Probably dislike it more than Episode Two. Um, so Ben. To sum it all up, what's the best summer for movies this decade? Uh, you know, just kind of looking over them in terms of consistency, I'd probably go with 2007 or 2009. Wow. Actually, I mean, the, the, the further I reach back, I mean, there's some there's some great movies, but I mean, this is kind of a um, an unsettling experience for me to look back on all of these because I ended up realizing how disappointed I had I must have been. Uh, throughout all of those years and to, to know that most of the better movies from those years came later uh, during the fall and winter I mean good grief let me let me just quickly run through the year that was 2001 or the summer that oh, was man. 2001 was awful um, you know Ben Stark and I have talked about this a few times just about how inexplicably bad 2001 is and I'll just read the list and that'll be it uh, the Mummy Returns, Shrek, Pearl Harbor, Swordfish, Atlantis, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, Doctor Doolittle Two, AI, Cats and Dogs, Scary Movie Two, America's Sweethearts, Planet of the Apes, Rush Hour Two, American Pie Two, Jeepers Creepers, and Jam Silent Bob Strike Back. Those were the big releases of 2001. Yeah, that's that's, that's really terrible. Yeah. I mean, I, apart from AI, obviously. Um, man, no, that's depressing. Yeah, so, you know, snap us out of that depression and tell us what the best summer uh, year of the decade was. Well, my favorite uh, was 2008. Um, not only because of uh, Wally and the Dark Knight, which were excluded from this conversation also, uh, but Iron Man, as you mentioned, uh, I love... Speed Racer. I know a lot of people don't, but I think it's a ton of fun. Uh, there was a great horror movie released uh, at, at the end of May called The Strangers, which I think is is one of the better horror movies that has seen wide release. Kung Fu Panda is a lot of fun. The Incredible Hulk, which isn't great, but is but is fun uh, and sets up the sort of Marvel continuity right after Iron Man. Um, I like Get Smart. It's pretty it's pretty disposable, but it's but it's I mean, it's funny, and it's got some good action. Wanted, with Angelina Jolie, is is great. Uh, Hellboy 2, which displays Guillermo del Toro's boundless imagination. Um, of course, we've got the... Yeah, go ahead. 
Ben, you there? Well, we'll try to get him back on the phone in just a minute. Um, but to continue my thought, um, Step Brothers, the X-Files sequel, Pineapple Express, Tropic Thunder, 2008, it's a great year for movies. Oh, and, and, and Hamlet 2 and Vicky Christina Barcelona in limited release. Um, we'll take a quick break while we try to get Ben back, and uh, when we return we'll talk about some industry headlines, very briefly about one of this weekend's new releases. Um, which I didn't much care for, so stick around. This is Aspect Radio. You're listening to 90.7 WVUFM, The Capstone. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. 90.7. Back here on Aspect Radio. Joined once again by Ben Flanagan from Atlanta, Georgia. Ben, are you there? I'm here. All right. Glad we got you back. Now, Ben, before we hit some industry headlines, we should note that we're obviously not reviewing a new release this week, but I did manage to catch Angelina Jolie's latest spy thriller, Salt, at a midnight showing this week. And I didn't much care for it, I, I have to say. Um, have, you, have you heard anything about this movie? Have you seen the reviews for it? Uh, I, I think, I've, you know, I've just seen that it's mixed on Rotten Tomatoes, but most notably I noticed that Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Yes, he did, and that's one of the reasons I went to see this movie at midnight. Let me tell you, not really worth four stars at all. Um, I, I'm kind of baffled by the response to this movie. It is a ridiculous action movie, and that's not inherently bad. You know, we've we've discussed on this show our fondness for both the A-Team and Night and Day, as a sort of fun popcorn entertainment. Uh, but I feel like Salt is as ridiculous as those movies, but without the sense of humor that those movies had. And that's almost crippling for a movie like this. If, you, if you're going to be ridiculous, at least be you know, somewhat self-aware about it, like Night and Day and the A-Team were. Uh, Salt tries to be a born movie, and... Um, you know, it doesn't really have the interesting story or, I guess, the verisimilitude of the Bourne movies. It totally fails uh, as it gets increasingly ridiculous. That's not to say that Angelina Jolie isn't necessarily a believable screen presence. She is, but uh, I don't, I don't, I don't much care for this movie. I'll just, I'll just say that. Um, well, uh, yeah, you haven't really convinced me to go see it. So. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Um, so uh, now let's let's talk about some industry news. Last week saw the release of a great trailer for David Fincher's upcoming film, The Social Network, known derisively in some circles as that Facebook movie. Ben, I don't know about you, but I thought this was an excellent trailer. Uh, does this trailer erase any anxiety you might have had about Fincher taking on Facebook? Well, I don't know that I had much anxiety about him taking on Facebook specifically so much as I have about him as a filmmaker these days, because I'm not a big fan of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, nor am I a fan of Zodiac, that three-hour Law & Order episode. Man, you're um, you're way off base there. <laughs> well, but, and also even uh, Fight Club, I'm not I'm not exactly singing its praises day and night. You know, I, 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 pref- I much prefer the David Fincher that gave us seven. I think that's when he was at his best. I think that's his masterpiece. And I, I, I wish he would have uh, followed that path, so to speak. But the social network, yes, it has it has erased anxiety 
in terms of how I feel about David Fincher. I think it's one of the best trailers I've seen in a while. It's right up there trailer-wise with Pineapple Express's Red Band trailer and Where the Wild Things Are from last year. And often that those are two movies that disappointed me, and it may be because I threw its, their trailers into the ranks of, you know, uh, the greatest of all time, and I'm sort of reticent to do that for this because I just don't want to be disappointed. But if it's a bad movie, I'm going to be disappointed. But no, Corey, I do, I do think this is an excellent trailer, trailer that uh, used that creep cover beautifully uh, by this Belgian choir called Scala, which we actually played on the show last yes, week. Yes, we did. You know, I was very jealous, you know, when I, when I hear great songs or I hear great songs that haven't been used in movies or trailers, I think to myself, like, when I was growing up and, of course, wanting, watching movies and wanting to make them, I, I was always uh, hoping nobody else stole my idea, but I guess, you know, if I'm not making them, somebody's going to have to do it, and I thought that Venture used it beautifully. Uh-huh. Well, uh, the Social Network trailer was attached to most prints of Christopher Nolan's Inception, which we talked about uh, extensively last week. Uh, this means, judging by box office, a whole lot of people saw it this past week. In its first week, seven days, Inception has already cleared $100 million and looks to power through this weekend's box office as well, taking the number one spot again with a little over $40 million. Uh, even with salt as a factor, trying to take away some of the some of the box office. Ben, are you surprised that Inception is cleaning up, particularly given its challenging nature? And just where is the limit on Inception, given that it's about to be released internationally? No, I'm not surprised by it because I think I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said Inception has become this movie where people think they have to see it because they want to be in on dinner conversation. And I think it was Ben Stark that said that, and. I totally agree with that. Most people that I talk to, they ask me about Inception and whether or not they should see it, and I say, of course you should, uh, because this is going to be a movie that, like you said, challenges you. It challenges your mind, but it's also going to reward you, not only visually, but it's going to tell a story that not only interests you, but excites you. And I think that the word of mouth on this movie has been tremendous, and the fact that it's going to be number one again with a very, very uh, small drop-off compared to other movies this year, um, that just tells you that the word of mouth is good. And the fact that it hasn't really been released wide internationally yet, I think that, it, I mean, it only made $16 million internationally last week, and that was only because it was on uh, relatively few screens. It's going to go wide nas- nationally, you could say, and I think it's going to clean up. I think it's going to make upwards of $600 million when all is said and done internationally. Wow. Yeah, that's a good number, especially for an original concept like this. What do you think? I mean, do you think it's going to be huge? I think that in Asian markets especially, it's gonna, it's just going to wipe the floor with all else this summer. I think the sky's the limit, to be honest. Uh, I don't know if domestically it's going to match Toy Story 3, which is knocking on the door of $400 million at the moment, uh, but but internationally, I think it, it, it's going to, yeah, like you said, clean up. I really do. Uh, this is the sort of movie that traditionally would do better internationally. But the fact that it has become sort of a conversation piece, as you said, in America, can only bode well, I think, for domestic uh, box office. And I think when all is said and done, Inception is going to exceed expectations um, for a two-and-a-half-hour original concept film. Uh, like it, it's probably going to gross around 
Oh, I'd say three hundred dollar, three hundred million uh, domestically uh, by itself. And it doesn't, it do, yeah, and it doesn't really have to make Avatar numbers or Dark no, numbers. No, by no means. Um, yeah, I mean, it costs you know between one hundred and sixty and two hundred million dollars, which probably you know made Warner Brothers more nervous than they'd ever been that they were putting all of the they're they're basically betting on this you know to be the hit that it has become. Uh, and, you know, kudos to Warner Brothers for taking that chance, too. But, I mean, all it really has to do domestically is clear 200, maybe reach 250 to, to you know, reassure Warner Brothers about that decision they made. But, again, I think that they're not really going to care out of way because the international numbers are going to be so big. Sure. Well, to shift gears a little bit, one of the major Hollywood promotional events of the year is happening right now in San Diego with 2010's Comic-Con. And a big story coming out of there this week is the confirmation that Joss Whedon, mastermind behind Buffy the Vampire Slayer and noted screenwriter and screen doctor, or screenwriting doctor for uh, films like Speed and Toy Story, uh, is taking the reins as director for the upcoming Marvel mega blockbuster, The Avengers. Ben, what do you think about this? Is Whedon a good fit? Well, you know, my wife Tess could answer this better than I could because she is a uh, fanatic when it comes to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She is very familiar with his work, and I've become slightly so because she's made me watch a number of episodes. I'm not, I'm not totally familiar with Joss Whedon to be honest with you, but from what I've seen uh, elsewhere, I think that yeah, probably he's a decent fit because I mean he's beloved. He's beloved by fans out there. There are a lot of Firefly slash Serenity fans who, you know, insist that he can make a solid sci-fi fantasy action movie. Um, So I I guess I'll trust them. And like you said, I mean, the work that he did on Toy Story and Speed, I mean, they're great movies, and obviously he made contributions. He got got credit on Toy Story. Yeah, he was was an Oscar nominee for that as well. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, the guy's got talent, and I don't really know who else I would want to direct this Avengers movie other than, say, John Favreau. Uh, but if he has to take a break, I'm glad that they're bringing somebody with this kind of name recognition and background to do it. Sure, and Joss Whedon, I should 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 mention, is a noted uh, writer in the comic book industry as well. He's done some of Marvel's Ultimates line, if I'm not mistaken, um, the exactly which titles. Uh, is escaping me at the moment, um, but he he has history with the company, and um, I really like Firefly and Serenity. Uh, I really like what I've seen of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, as far as visual acumen, I I don't know, but Serenity is a nice looking movie. Still, that was his only film, and it was made five years ago. So I I, I remain cautiously optimistic myself, uh, though I I guess I'm not completely sold on this. Uh, but also out of Comic-Con, Guillermo del Toro, who we mentioned earlier, fresh off leaving the still-delayed project, uh, the adaptation of The Hobbit, announced that he would be co-writing and producing a reboot of The Haunted Mansion for Disney, once again based on the theme park ride. Now, this version, he says, will not be a family comedy like the previous attempt, a 2003 family comedy starring Eddie Murphy, but instead will be thrilling and frightening. Now, Ben... Though Del Toro is not directing this film, what's the deal? Do you think he'll be able to get anything worthwhile out of this concept? Well, I, the first thing I thought to myself is, you left The Hobbit to do what? To write The Haunted Mansion based on a theme park ride? That's what you wanted to do? 
Um, you know, maybe this will help him blow off some steam after that whole obviously arduous Hobbit process. But again, talk about cautiously optimistic. That's how I've kind of felt about Del Toro's work um, so far as a filmmaker. Whenever he has a movie come out, mm-hmm. um, but I just my, my my feeling is also look, Del Toro, you're you're a guy that people respect as an original and creative filmmaker, somebody who has vision. Uh, why not make Guillermo del Toro's haunted house movie without tapping into some sort of property? Yeah, that's exactly what I said. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you're an original guy. Be original. I think people will be much more interested in the del Toro haunted house movie uh, as opposed to his take on an existing property. Now, to be fair, his next film as director, he says, is going to be an original horror film based on his concept. Uh, mm-hmm. as, as for what that is, he, he's going to announce after Comic-Con, so at some point within the next month or two months, I, I think we should know for sure. Uh, but I, I agree with pretty much everything you said just now. Um, I'm looking, I'm far more interested in, in what he has as an original storyteller uh, than him taking the reins of any property, including The Hobbit, because for my money, Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone, both two dark fantasy slash horror movies based on his original concepts are two just tremendously great movies and um for him to do it again I, I i really can't wait for that whatever his original horror concept would be well uh we'll take another quick break uh with some strokes and when we return we'll make some announcements and talk dvd stick around this is aspect radio Back here on Aspect Radio, it's time for some DVD picks. Ben, what do you have for us this week? Well, um, I'm planning on watching Christopher Nolan's feature debut following, which is available on Netflix Instant Watch. And it's only 70 minutes long, so I figure you can knock that out uh, pretty easily. Um, I started the Green Zone, or excuse me, Green Zone. I always want to tack on that beat there, the Paul Greengrass movie. Uh, with Matt Damon. I started, I'm about 40 minutes into that, and I don't mind what I've seen so far, but it's pretty much exactly what I expected. Yeah. Uh, but really, w- my main concern here is Tess and I are still about halfway through Breaking Bad Season 2. Uh, we've got, well, I guess we have about th- three or four episodes to go, so, I mean, once once we're done with that, I'll get back to really exploring what movies uh, I might be interested in, but right now it's Breaking Bad all the time. Well, it's a great show, so nobody could begrudge you that. Um, as far as the past few weeks of new releases, though, you're not really missing anything. Uh, the only one of note that I was able to catch uh, is last week's release of the 2009 stop-motion animated film A Town Called Panic, which is uh, a French-language film, um, and very, very, very funny. I believe that this was based off of some short films that sort of made their way to America via Nickelodeon, Um but this one is also on Netflix Instant View, and I can't really do justice to, to summarize a plot. It, needless to say, the, the film uh, depicts three little toy figurines uh, in, in a little very 
obviously artificial world as they get into all manners of slapstick comedy and you wouldn't think that it works but once you get into its rhythm it's incredibly funny um that's really it as far as new releases i think that the big three new releases this past week uh the runaways cop out and the losers are not worth talking about um i was not really happy with any of those um especially not cop out i should say not a very good film um but Ben, yeah, I, I do recommend A Town Called Panic. It's on Netflix Instant, and it's pretty short, too. I think a, a, a little bit, around 70 minutes long. So check that out. Definitely. Yeah, it's a funny movie. Well, time for some announcements opening nationwide in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16 this week. Salt, starring Angelina Jolie, Leah Schreiber, and Chiwetel Ejiofor. How do you pronounce his last name? I think it's... Yeah, a GF4, maybe? A GF4, something like that. Yeah, he's awesome, but I just don't know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, anyway, Salt is directed by Philip Noyce. We discussed it earlier. And Ramona and Beezus with Selena Gomez and John Corbett. I didn't know this movie existed until right now. Okay, well, obviously not marketed towards me. Also, keep an eye out for the Bama Art House Summer Movie Series, which concludes with Please Give next Tuesday, July 27th at 8 p.m. at the Bama Theater. Are you going to try to make this one? You know, I haven't made one yet. <laughs> I think it might be appropriate if I at least try yeah. to make this one. I, I actually can't make this one. Um, there is an advanced screening of Dinner for Schmucks in Birmingham on Tuesday. I'm going to try to go to that. Yeah, I hope it's worth your time. Well, I look forward to that one. Yeah, but um, I really want to see Please Give, too. Um, so I'm kind of disappointed that the times <sighs> lined up like that. But so it goes. Uh, well, if you have any feedback, you can email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com. If you feel we've missed something or you have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please do email us. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at @aspectradio or twitter.com slash aspectradio. Download this and other pot episodes of the show on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com, Tumblr spelled T-U-M-B-L-R. We'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. As always, don't forget to visit our friend Matt Scalici's website, filmnerds.com, where you'll find some cool podcasts and a really fun blog. And you can catch my and Ben's columns in Tusk Magazine, found in every Friday edition of the Tuscaloosa News. Well, Ben, uh, hope you have a good time in Atlanta. Thanks, and, uh, and uh, you know, now you're a man of the radio, Corey. You've done it all by yourself. Well, we'll see. So, uh, we'll see how it turns out on the recording. Yeah, congratulations. Well, this might have been dead air the entire time, and I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I guess we will. Yeah. There's the, the, the sound uh, spikes on the um, on on Audacity, so it looks like we we probably did okay. But until next week, for Ben Flanagan, I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio, and thank you for listening. I'm going home now. I apologize for what I said. I hope you can forget it, but I'm going home right now.